This is the Men's Muster Podcast, Episode 5. Welcome to the Men's Muster Podcast. My name is Alex Rodriguez, and I'm the host and the founder of the Men's Muster, which is a ministry that's focused on seeing men be discipled and deployed for Christ in his kingdom. Uh, today, as episode, we're going to continue with our series on godly manhood, and we're going to do that by looking at the second part of Signs and Characters of a Godly Man by Thomas Watson. Now, as we work through this episode, it's going to be divided into two main sections. The first section is, the godly man is a Christ prizer. And the second section is, the godly man is a lover of God's word. Now, before we actually start jumping into the writing of Thomas Watson here, I want to do is, I want to read a passage of scripture and have that align and prepare our hearts for the truth that we're going to be hearing in and through the writing of Thomas Watson. So if you're following along with your Bible, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. If you don't have your Bible, that's okay. Um, But let me read this passage of Scripture for us. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. I picked this for our scripture reading because it really centers our hearts on the person of Christ. And this leads us to the first point here that Thomas Watson has. And that first point is, the godly man is a Christ prizer. Now, Watson, as he starts this section, references 1 Peter 2, verse 6. And so I'm going to go ahead and read 1 Peter 2, 6. And it reads as follows. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. What Watson really wants everybody's mind to focus on is that word precious. He wants us to see that Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, is in himself precious. Now that word precious It means valuable. It means of extreme cost. It's something that's costly. And so even right now, as we are just starting this episode, we have to pause and we have to ask ourselves, is Christ precious to me? Do I view Christ as of having great value? 
And, and to even narrow it a little bit more, it isn't, is Christ precious to me because he saved me? Is Christ precious to me because he himself is precious in himself, apart from anything he's done for me? Do we see the value of Christ simply because of who he is? And so that question you and I have to answer right now. And my prayer is that we would say, yes, yes, yes. Christ is infinitely precious simply because of who he is. Now, as I was reading that section by Thomas Watson, I was also struck by the fact that he says, Christ prizer. Notice he didn't say Christ follower. He didn't say Christ believer, but he said a Christ prizer. By putting it this way, what Watson's really doing, he's getting at the heart of the issue. And the reason I say that is because a man may believe in Jesus. A man may even attempt to, to follow Jesus for a variety of reasons. But that doesn't mean that he sees him as precious. He may believe in Jesus simply to escape the torments of hell. He may follow Jesus simply because he agrees with the moral principles of Christianity. He may do both of those for certain prestige or to be thought well of by others. But to be a Christ prizer, to see Christ as precious to you, now that's a whole nother issue. That gets to a heart issue. You can't fake Christ being precious to you. And so it's under this subhead, this heading here of Christ being a Christ prizer that he breaks, Watson breaks these, uh, these other subheadings down. And so we're going to work through each of these subheadings. The first subheading he has under Christ prizer is that Christ is precious in his person. And again, I want to read Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, which we did a few minutes ago. But I want you to hear it and really focus on it. And he, meaning Jesus, is the radiance of his glory, meaning the Father, in the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purifications of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I don't know if you're picking up on it, but to behold God the Son is to behold God the Father. What on earth could be more valuable to any human being than to be able to behold the King of glory? The one who made you, saved you, sanctifies you, and will glorify you. I can't think of anything more, more precious and more valuable than my eyes could lay on. As I was reading this, I decided to do a, a Google search. And I wanted to figure out what is the most valuable painting in the world right now. And it came back that it's the Mona Lisa. And a variety of sites said, if you take inflation into account and all this stuff, that the Mona Lisa is valued at around $860 million. That's a lot of money. Guys, think about this. Christ, in his person, who he is, his preciousness is far beyond $860 million. 
And I don't know about you, but that was that was a helpful way to think about it because it's it's something I can it's it's quantifiable. I can my mind can wrap its head around, I can wrap my mind around eight hundred and sixty million. And so to think of Christ and to think that He is far more precious and valuable than eight hundred sixty million dollars was just a tangible way for me to sit back and say, "Wow, wow, Christ is precious in His person." And so from there, Watson breaks down his person. He says his subpoint number two, subheading number two, is Christ is precious in his offices. And the first office he hits at is the prophetic office of Christ. Uh, so listen, Watson writes this. He teacheth not only the ear, but also the heart, end quote. When you and I, when we're talking or reading about the prophetic office of Christ, what we're talking about is the fact that Christ teaches us the word and will of God. So another way to just to think about it, Jesus is the key that unlocks heaven for us. In his prophetic office, Jesus disciples you and me. And he does that right now in and through his word and by his spirit. How valuable is that? How precious is that? Had Christ not come, had Christ not lived, had Christ not died, had Christ not resurrected, had Christ not sent his spirit to indwell all those who by grace are saved, you and I could not know the word and will of God. But in his prophetic office, he does that for us. Secondly, there's his priestly office, and it's in, in and through his priestly office that you and I receive pardon of sin. And so another passage to, to, to read to you comes from Hebrews chapter 9. And in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26, it says, Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Let me read that one more time, that last part. He has manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus has done away with man's greatest problem, which is the problem of sin. Watson puts it this way. He hung upon the cross that I might sit upon the throne. That's amazing. In and through the priestly office of Christ, rebels become co-heirs. Brothers become... Uh, Rebels become brothers, rebels become co-heirs, rebels become children of God. Just think about how richly blessed we are in that. The priestly office of Christ is precious. And thirdly, we have his, his regal office or his kingly office. And that's his rule and reign over us. And so I want to read Revelation from Revelation here. Revelation chapter 19, verse 16. 
And it says, And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of King and Lord of Lords. And then again to Hebrews. Hebrews is such a rich book as we think about who Christ is. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Jesus Christ rules and reigns as king over all. End of story. He has no rivals. He doesn't need re-election. He's not getting impeached. Jesus is king and he rules and reigns from his kingly office. Again, to quote Watson, Christ sets up his scepter where no other king doth. He rules the will and affections. His power binds the conscience. End quote. How precious is it that in a world where everybody's competing for power and we see corruption, we have a king who sits enthroned on high forever. Is that not precious? Is that not valuable? Is that not a source of great comfort and security for us men? Now, you know, the purpose of our of this podcast, right, the purpose of our time together isn't to get caught up talking politics and all that. But I think we can all agree that to some, to some measure, we've seen government overreach. We've seen abuses of power. I think of our brothers who are, are pastoring churches in Canada and being arrested. What a comfort it is to know that Jesus is king, that Jesus is ruling and reigning in his, pre, in his kingly office. That all these leaders across the globe that are abusing their powers and not recognizing that they've been instituted, they've been placed there by God for righteousness sake. They're nothing but little boys playing soldier. And so we can take great comfort in the preciousness of Christ's offices as prophet, priest, and king. The next subpoint, subpoint number three. If we are prizers of Christ, then we prefer him in our judgments before other things. So the point that Watson's trying to make here is that you and I are to value Jesus Christ above all honor and all riches that this world could offer. Right? To, 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 to truly believe that this world has nothing for us. Again, from the book of Hebrews, we're going to... I reference it a lot in this podcast episode. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 26, it talks about Moses. And listen to what it says about Moses. It's always been a striking passage. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Like Moses had it all. He had it all. He had money, he had influence. He could probably have any pleasure he desired. But in light of all of that, he considered it absolutely worthless compared to the value and preciousness of Christ. 
And so what does Moses do? He embraces a life that is full of struggle, full of difficulty. Why? Because Jesus is worth it. Because Jesus is precious. So how about you and me? Does our life tell the story of embracing the criticism and the rebuke of the world in order to gain Christ? Or are we more like the rich young ruler who had really high thoughts, really seemed to respect Jesus, but he didn't prize him over his material wealth, so he walks away? Are we going to be Moses and see Christ as precious? Or are we going to be like the rich young ruler and see the riches of the world more precious? Something to think about. Some point number four. If we are prizers of Christ, we cannot live without him. Right? So just like a body, a human body, can't live without food, you and I can't live without Christ. Listen to the words from Psalm chapter 16, verse 2. Psalm 16, 2 reads, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. And then listen to the words from Colossians chapter 3, verse 4a. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed. Jesus Christ is our life. Apart from him, we have no good. I remember... I think back and I remember when I was an atheist. I remember being in my teens and in my 20s and living for me in the, the utter emptiness of life. It was, I was, even though I was alive, I was dead. I was like a zombie. But when the Lord in his sovereign grace gave me a new heart and awakened me to the reality of who Jesus is, everything changed. I can't. I couldn't imagine living without him. I often try to imagine what life without Christ would, would be like right now. Like, okay, Alex, imagine you're an atheist again right now. And I, I just can't. It's like trying to draw a square circle. It just seems like a, a logical impossibility to me. Watson goes on in that section to ask an amazingly heart-piercing question that drives home this very point. He says, Lord... Give me Christ or I die. One drop of the water of life to quench my, t my thirst. Do these, price, do these prize Christ who can sit down content without him? Let me read that one more time. Lord, give me Christ or I die. One drop of the water of life to quench my thirst. Do these prize Christ who can sit down content without him? Man, I really believe that to live without Christ in this life would truly be hell on earth. I wonder if you share that same, that same sentiment with me. All right, subpoint number five. If we are prizers of Christ, then we shall not grudge at any pains to get him. Okay, so... Let's go to Psalm 63, 
verse 8. In Psalm 63, verse 8 reads, My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. So when you, when you and I truly value something, we devote ourselves to it. We're willing to suffer and sacrifice for it. And we cease pursuing other things in order to, to attain it. And nothing competes with it in our heart. Does that describe your approach to Jesus? Because for the prizer of Christ, for the man who sees him as precious, there is no trial too hard, there is no mountain too high, there is no weight that is too heavy. Because we want Christ and we're going to get him and we're going to go through any obstacle to get him because he is the consuming desire of our heart. He is our greatest love and therefore he deserves our greatest efforts. I know guys who say Jesus is everything to them, but when push comes to shove, they shrink back and shrivel up. And what frustrates me even more is these are the same guys that I see take great pains and, and display great sacrifice to further their careers, to hit the gym and, and develop their bodies, you know, to, to whatever it is. It's not that they're unable to sacrifice it's not that they're unable to suffer for something that they want. It's that they don't really want Jesus, even though they say they do. It's just cheap talk. And that breaks my heart. Now, I'm not saying I have this down perfect. Of course not. There's days that I'm a total hypocrite with that message. But I pray, by the grace of God, that, that, that those moments aren't characteristic that over the course of my life, what people see is a man radically dependent upon the grace of God and the Spirit of God as he seeks to sacrifice and suffer to gain God. And I pray that's true for you guys as well. This brings us to sub-point number six. If you and I are prizers of Christ, then we will part with our dearest lusts for him. So we all have our secret sins. We all have those, those, those sins that we cling to and it is immensely difficult to let go of. We don't want to part with them. But if we don't, if we don't identify those sins, if, if we don't name those sins, stalk those sins, and kill those sins, then they're going to keep us from Christ and end up killing us. Watson captures, captures this perfectly. When he writes, he's writing about, about the man who prizes Christ, he says, he will set his feet upon the neck of his sins. Just picture that. You got your foot on the neck of your sins, ready to kill it. When it comes to these things that Watson calls our dearest lusts, there's no place to be a spiritual pacifist. No, you need to get up close and you need to kill it 
when you identify those sins, you need to pull that, that blade out of its sheath and you need to slit its throat and put it to death. Because Christ is worthy. He is precious and we are to prize him. You can't prize Christ when you're wrinkling the sheets with your little sins. With my sins. I can't do, we can't do that. Watson goes on to say again, How can they be said to prize Christ who will not leave a vanity for him? What a scorn and contempt do they put upon the Lord Jesus who prefer a damning lust before a saving Christ. That last part gets me. Who prefer a damning lust before a saving Christ. End quote. This subpoint is, is, is crucial. It's huge. I could spend the rest of this episode and many more just talking about the importance of killing sin. But let me just let me just say what Jesus says in Matthew 5. In Matthew 5, starting in verses verse 29, Jesus writes says the following. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus speaks with strong words here. If you and I are to prize Christ, then we need to take extreme measures with our dearest lusts, as Watson would put it. Subpoint number seven. If we are prizers of Christ, we will be willing to help others to a part in him. And, and this makes sense, right? Because it's the most natural thing in the world to share with others the things that you love and delight in. So if we love, delight, and prize Christ, then we should be sharing him with other people. Another way to think about it is for those who truly are prizing Christ, they will naturally be evangelists for him. Evangelism is the fruit of delighting in Jesus. Watson writes, Do we commend Christ to others? Do we take them by the hand and lead them to Christ? This shows how few prize Christ because they strive not more that their relations should have a part in him. I think most of us would agree that it feels like society is moving further and further away from Christ. And I wonder if it's possible that part of that is because, part of the reason so many are perishing is because um, so few of us who actually profess faith in Christ actually prize Christ. Because people are perishing every day. But if all the people who profess to believe in Jesus really did prize him, it would look so different. So those are the subpoints, the subheadings to that first point about being a Christ prizer. So this brings us to the second section. The second section is a godly man is a lover of the word. And 
as I thought about that, I, my mind went to Psalm 119, right? The longest chapter in the entire Bible, and it's radically focused on God's Word. Right? You read Psalm 119, and you walk away from that moment, and you feel like you're on fire for the Bible. You're like, I just, I just love God's Word. I need to get in God's Word. i got to share God's Word. You're consumed with it. Rightly so. Because a godly man is going to love God's word. It is not a stretch to say that the most valuable thing, the, the most valuable material possession you own is your Bible. Because it is your Bible in which the King of Glory speaks to you. It is through the Bible that the, the God of all creation shapes you into Christ-likeness. Your Bible is your most valuable possession. And how I wish, how I wish men prize the Word of God like they do all their little toys that fill their man caves. And just a side note about that, even as I say that right now, right? Like, what's up with this idea of having a man cave? I don't understand. Like, back in the day, it was called a study. Men would go there, and there would be books, and they would discuss the important things of life. They would discuss God and his fullness, and now it's now it's about a man cave. And I don't know, the word cave just makes me think of some, like, Neanderthal. Um, let's, let's bring the study back. Um, anyway, that's just a sub-point. Uh, that's just a, a, a thought I had that just came out of nowhere. Um, so what are the sub-points that, that Watson begins to list here? under a lover of the word. And the first sub-point is, a godly man loves the word that is written. So we got to be honest here. For the majority of you, for the majority of men, the biggest reason that men don't get into the written word is not a lack of time, but a lack of love. Because men are always going to make time for what they love. Easy way to prove this? Sundays during football season. Men will restructure their entire Sunday. They will find ways to scoot out of church the minute it's over to get to get home to watch the game. Men will always make time for what they love. In Psalm 119, which I had just referenced. It says this, Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. David says, I love your word, God, so much that I'm just focused on it from sunup to sundown all day long. Do you love the written word like that? Watson goes on, sub-point number two. He loves the counseling part of the word. Now, it's interesting. God knows that his word provides direction in life. God doesn't leave us to our own devices. If we will put ourselves before if we put ourselves before the Word of God under 
the word of God. God will guide us. God will direct us. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Seeing that his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Everything we need for life and godliness, God has given us in his holy word. And so the man of God loves that the word of God governs and directs their life. He goes on, sub-point number three. A godly man loves the minatory part of the word. Now, that's a word that we don't use often or at all anymore. I don't think I've ever heard it until I read Watson. That word minatory, it means the threatening, the menacing parts of God's word. Rather than me try to explain what he means, let me give you what Watson means directly. He says this. This is the threatening of the word. It flasheth fire in the face of every person that goes on obstinately in wickedness. The word gives no indulgence to evil. End quote. Man, do you ever realize how gracious God is to give us such serious warning passages? Passages that make us feel uncomfortable, maybe scared? How good God is to give us threats in his word. I say that it's good because by doing so, God is reminding us that he will not have our hearts divided. He must have our full heart. And so God, in his love and his grace and his mercy and goodness, he seeks to scare us from our sin. You know, people love to worship God for the direction, the comfort, and the promises he gives. And those are great things to worship God for. But the godly man also worships God for the warnings and threats contained in his word. Subpoint number four. A godly man loves the consolatory part of the word, the promises, which is what I was just mentioning. You know, we saw how the word of God directs. We saw how the word of God warns. But it is true, the Word of God is a comfort to us. And I'm so thankful for that. So thankful. I can't tell you how many times, Psalm 42, 5, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? I can't tell you how many times that has pulled me out of that dark night of the soul that happens. The Word of God is an amazing comfort. And even as I say that, it's not even that the word of God is a comfort. It is God through his word comforts us. Watson says this, The promises were David's harp to drive away sad thoughts. They were the breast that milked out the divine consolation to him. What a beautiful, beautiful way to put it. Guys, let me put it, let me say this. When the word of God, when, when we... When we read the word of God with eyes of faith, it becomes to us like a warm fire on a really cold night. You know, it's the word of God read through the eyes of faith becomes a a cold cup of water on a hot day. It becomes a healing balm for the wounded heart. And so pick up this, this Bible of yours. Pick up the word of God. Come before it in humility and expectation 
Ask God to give you eyes of faith as you read and be comforted by this word. Because a godly man loves the consolatory part of the word. Watson wraps up this section by giving six ways the godly man can show that he loves the word. So here's six application points. They're going to come pretty quick um, just because I'm already at like 35 minutes, which is longer than normal. So the, one of the first ways we can show our love is by the diligent reading of God's word. Right? Be the Berean uh, that you hear of in Acts chapter 17. Acts 17, 11, right? Paul's, Paul's there. Paul's talking. And it says, Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Right? Let us, let us diligently read God's word with a heart of eagerness and devotion. Let that define us. Watson says, A godly man's heart is the library to hold the word of God. It dwells richly in him. I love that picture. I love books. I, I love the idea of a room surrounded with good books. Right? That's my, that's my happy place. So for, for Watson to say that a godly man's heart is the library to hold the word of God, yes, amen, I love it. A few sentences later, after that quote, Watson writes, by diligent conversing with Scripture, we may carry a Bible in our head. Amen. As we diligently read God's Word, God's Word gets drilled into our mind more and more and more. You know what? God forbid you get arrested. God, you get put into prison. You have no access to a Bible. If you've diligently read the Word of God and it's stored in your head and stored in your heart, no one can take that from you. And you can still commune with the Lord. Number two. We can show our love for the Word of God by frequent meditating. And Psalm 119 talks about this meditation on the Word so much. So Psalm 119 verse 97 says, I think I read this one earlier. 119.97 Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. I think... Let me illustrate what we mean here by meditation. I want you to imagine that the Word of God is like a bag of tea and that your mind is the cup of hot water. And you want to allow the Word of God to steep deeply and richly so that over time, you can get all the benefits from it. You get up in the morning, turn the kettle on, you pour the hot water in the cup, you put some tea in a cup, you drop it, right? You let it steep. The longer you leave it in there, the stronger the tea. In the same way, let the Word of God steep in your mind. It's important to remember that whatever our mind is filled with, our heart will meditate on. All right, sub-point number three. He shows his love to the Word of God. How? By delighting in it. So let's go to Jeremiah chapter 15. In Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16, it says, Your words were found, and I ate them. And your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. 
For I have been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. So let me ask a question here. Do you view your time in God's word as a duty or as a delight? You know, we need to change our perspective if our view is one of duty without delight. Because duty without delight becomes drudgery. Now, duty itself doesn't mean there's no delight, right? You can, you can delight in your duty, but duty without delight will become drudgery. The man of God who loves the word of God will consume it and delight in it. it that's what Jeremiah says. It became a joy and a delight of the heart. If you don't delight in the word of God, you got to do a heart check. Sub point number four, we show our love for the word of God by hiding it, hiding the word of God. Psalm 119 verses 9 through 11 say, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you, let me not wander from your commands. I have stored your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. It captures the the essence, the importance of hiding God's word in our hearts. In those three verses I just read, Psalm 119 verses 9 through 11, I recite to my son every night as I put him to bed. And I do that because I want my son to know those verses. And he does. He has them memorized now. at seven years old. Because I want him to know that if he takes the word of God and he stores it deep within his heart, that he will end up becoming a man of holiness. That's that first part. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Right? Word of God provides purity. I have stored your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Right? It's a defense. You know, the church I used to be at had an amazing Awana program and these kids would uh, memorize verses every week. And parents were like so proud of them and they'd get these little patches and they'd put them on their vests. And yet somehow along the way, a kid leaves Awana, goes to youth group, then from youth group goes to college and then goes to adult church. And you know what? Everybody stops memorizing scripture verses. Everybody stops hiding the word in their heart. We got to do better. We need to have God's word stored in our heart. We need to hide it in our heart. There's an important distinction that needs to be made here. Let me quote Watson. The word is the jewel. The heart is the cabinet where it must be locked up. Many hide the word in their memory, but not in their heart. Here's that last part again. Many hide the word in their memory, but not in their heart. Truth that doesn't lead to Christ-likeness, guys, is absolutely pointless and a waste of time. It's not just having it memorized in our heads, but it's having it memorized and storing it in the heart in a transformative, Christ-like conforming manner. Watson goes on to say, So a godly man carries the word in his heart as a spiritual antidote to preserve him from the infection of sin. Read that one more time. 
So a godly man carries the word in his heart as a spiritual antidote to preserve him from the infection of sin. I mean, what a mental picture. When we hide the word of God in our hearts, we carry with us a spiritual first aid kit. And we're going to need it. We're going to need it. Sub point number five. We show our love of God by preferring it above things that are most precious. And Watson says, one of the, the things that we find most precious, he talks about food. Right? Which is, which is necessary. We need nourishment. We need sustenance. And he quotes Job 23.12. I have not departed from the command of his lips... I have treasured the word of his mouth more than my necessary food. Now, none of us, I don't think, listening, have ever like been to the point of starvation. Maybe some of you have. But I remember being in army basic training and not having some meals, and I was starving. I would have given anything for some food. We got to want the word of God more than we want food itself. Jesus in the wilderness, right? I think it's uh, it's in Matthew 4, right? When he's being tempted by Satan in the wilderness and the devil tempts him, turn these stones to bread. And he says, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We need to love God's word more than the food that this world can offer. I'd rather starve physically than starve spiritually. Because this body is going to waste away anyway, but my soul will last forever. Then he says, above riches. So again, let's go to Psalm 119. And in Psalm 119, we're going to look specifically at verse 72, which says, The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. God's word is more precious to us than all of the riches in the world. If Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, and Elon Musk all put their wealth together and said, it's yours, just give up God's word the rest of your life, your answer better be absolutely not. Because all of the riches in the entire world is like a drop of water in the ocean compared to the value in the preciousness of God's word. So it's above food, it's above riches, and then Watson says it's above worldly honor. And he gives this powerful illustration. Let me read it to you. Memorable is the story of King Edward VI, who upon the day of his coronation, when they presented before him three swords, signifying to him that he was the monarch of three kingdoms, the king said, There is yet one sword wanting. Being asked what that was, he answered, The Holy Bible, which is the sword of the Spirit and is to be preferred before these ensigns of royalty. There is no honor, no title, no prestige, no anything this world can bestow upon you that is more precious than God's word. The last point he gives here, 
We show our love for God by conforming to it. Let me say it like this. Men, when, when the word... Let me say it again. The word that is not submitted to and not shaped by is the word that is not believer prized. When you don't submit to the word of God and are not being shaped by the word of God, then you're not believing the word of God and prizing the word of God. You and I can never forget that Satan himself has a commanding grasp of God's word, but he is not conformed by it. It's simply knowledge, but it's not conforming. And so, so I beg you guys, as I beg for myself, let's not be simply doctrinal devils. Rather, let's be submissive saints. Let's let God's word have its conforming effect on our lives. Let it shape us to resemble more and more of Christ. And I'm going to end here. Let me just end with these words from Romans chapter 12, verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. All right, guys, this concludes uh, our section on Watson. We'll have something new next week. Grace and peace.